Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Would we all be better off if only we had better politicians? It's a comforting illusion, but really the problem isn't those who sweep in and out of power, but you and me, the public. That's the basic argument put forward by political scientist Ben Ansell in his new book, Why Politics Fails. Drawing on examples from ancient Greece to Brexit and COVID lockdowns, Ben argues compellingly that the problem with politics is that self-interest and collective goals rub up against each other to create five inescapable traps. The democracy trap, for instance, is that we want a say in how we're governed, but all have rather different ideas of what that entails. Indeed, the idea of a will of the people is the stuff of utopian fantasy, not political reality. Ben is one of our sharpest and most acute political analysts, as anyone who reads his Substack political calculus will know, and it was a huge pleasure to have him on the podcast. I hope you all enjoy listening as much as I did interviewing him. Ben, thank you very much for being here. Welcome to the CapEx podcast. Your book, Why Politics Fails, is out this very week, March the 30th. It was released in the UK. Just for our listeners' benefit, who may not read political calculus or be familiar with your academic work, who are you and what do you do? So I have a very long title. I'm the Professor of Comparative Democratic Institutions at the University of Oxford. The reason I have such a long title is a typically Oxford efficiency story. I interviewed for two positions. They couldn't make their mind up which I should get, so they merged the titles. Uh, so now I'm stuck with this very long title for the rest of my life. And so yeah, I teach politics at Oxford at Nuffield College. But before that, I taught for seven years in the United States at the University of Minnesota, and that's where I did my graduate school. So I've sort of spent my life between the UK and the US. Institutions is a very broad remit. And what, what are your focuses? I know you've done a lot of work on education, for example, earlier in your career. What are your particular interests? So I am a bit of a magpie. And in part, that's because I came to the study of politics from doing an undergraduate in history. So I don't have any kind of vested political science area that, that I'm, I've been desperate to, to promulgate my whole life. I think what I'm interested in is one of my colleagues once described me as someone who's interested in the politics of everyday life. And I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's right. People do really care about the education that their children receive. People really care about the price of their houses. Uh, other work yeah, I've we'll, done We'll is, come on to that. <laughs> <laughs> wealth taxes, 
social distancing in COVID. So I am always attracted to things that I think are interesting and are underexplored by academics. And, and so a lot of my work has been on that. Although I'm also someone who likes big picture questions. And my second book was on the interplay between inequality and democratization. The big picture stuff is interesting, but I am always drawn to things that you know affect people's day-to-day lives and the reason why people feel the urge to go out and vote. Right. And this is, like you say, you've written other books already, but this is your first book for a general audience. I and mean, how have you found the sort of transition from writing? Academic writing is a very particular thing. Writing for the layman is not. So. so I think like many people who become academics, well, firstly, most people who become academics carry on at graduate school because they're good at school and they can't think about what to do next. But at the back of their mind, they also might think, gosh, I would really like to be somebody who can speak to a wider audience. And this is one way of going there. I want to know if anyone listening to this, planning this, it's a very circuitous route of going there. But I think it is the case that once you're an established academic, you have the time, space and some sort of voice and expertise to get out there and speak to people. And so in a way, I probably should have done this earlier, <laughs> but it is very, very hard, as you noted, to escape the kind of trappings of academic writing and the professional norms of the academic career. Like for many academics who've written a more public facing book, you have to take a jump off the high diving board. And it also involves a hell of a lot of rewriting, as your editors say, yeah, could we have a few fewer citations? And actually, you can do this without the tables and the figures and all the crutches that you get used to as an academic. Right. Yeah, I'm very used to that in my own work as an editor. Whenever I get anything from an academic, it's absolutely loaded with footnotes and things and a very particular way of going about things. You also have a blog called, or is it a substack called Political Calculus? Tell us a bit about that. That's very much kind of nuts and bolts of politics there. Yeah, I decided since I've written a book which doesn't have a single table or a figure in it, trust me, was really like shedding several layers of academic skin for me. Perhaps the other side of me, the Mr. Hyde part, wanted to have a place where I could do some more public focus, really contemporary survey analysis, and trust the fact that there is a group of people out there who like reading long blog posts with lots and lots of figures and confidence errors and discussions of academic work. But what I have tried to do with that is I don't write it like an academic. So it's scattered with the cornucopia of things that academics like, like bar charts. But I think the writing of it is aimed to reach to a wider audience. And so far, that's been, I think, successful in as much as I can tell, not least because it does leads to interesting opportunities talking to people about a lot of people have been interested in wealth taxation and the home building stuff, understandably, because this country is in a crisis with home building and there is a large demand that I fear for them will be unfulfilled to engage in some form of wealth taxation potentially as a response. Yeah, I mean, we'll come on to, because one of your recent posts was about housing. We'll come on to that and how it relates to some of the things you talk in the book. But So the book's called Why Politics Fails. And there's quite a few books with slightly similar titles that usually tend to go on, you know, things like Democracy, The God That Failed and things like that. But your thesis is not that, you know, democracy is bad or undesirable. It's more about the inherent contradictions in any kind of politics. So just briefly, how do you set out what you're trying to argue in this book? There is a really core argument to this book, which is that the problem is us. It's not our politicians, and our politicians might be bad at the job, they might be erratic, or they might be venal, and we've had lots of discussions about which particular politicians in Westminster might be most erratic and venal. But replacing our politicians doesn't seem to resolve the problem, and that's because ultimately we all disagree on things. We all seek 
anytime we're faced with a policy to respond to that policy in the way that's best for us individually. And we might not realize we're doing it, but each of us often does undermine you know, the best laid plans of mice and men as we go about making our choices about what we think is best for our family or for our career. I think ultimately it's important to face up to that and not to denounce it and say, gosh, people are selfish, isn't that terrible? But rather to say, you know what, we are all quite self-interested, each of us. How can we design systems that help us come to terms with that, help us attain some collective goals that we might have, but without pretending that we can somehow squeeze these sort of underlying political differences that we all have out? Yeah, it's kind of this agent problem, isn't it? That people much prefer to blame the bad man or woman than pretend. If only we had nicer people in charge. Everything would be brilliant. I mean, I'm not a political psychologist, and the book doesn't delve deeply into that, but they do talk a lot about fundamental attribution error, which is if someone does something I don't like, well, that's their character. But if someone does something I like, you know, that's because, but I don't like them. Well, that's just because they had to. (laughs) They didn't turn out to be a good person after all. And then there's this other idea that there's this younger brother syndrome, that nobody really takes seriously the behavior of other people like themselves. We're all kind of the main character. Right. And yeah. everybody else is an NPC. And I think it's really important to think, well, you know, what are all the choices that I make? So NPC is a non-player character. If you're not a gaming enthusiast, then. Uh, <laughs> if you're not a gaming enthusiast, yes, you won't know this. Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge our own sort of sins here, not to think of them, though, as sinful in any way, but just as inevitable. And then realize that other people go through that, too. So we can't just elect some moral leader or some leader who really speaks for the people and assume those political problems will go away. They won't. Yeah, you said speaks for the people in one of your contentions, your first part about democracy. So there are five traps that you set out. One is democracy is that there is no such thing as kind of the people or or their will. And you had first-hand experience of this because you went and were asked to help design a voting system during the Brexit, imbroglio, back and forth. That's a good word. Conflagration, long words. So it feels like some weird time warp now, reading about all these votes that we had, and it was endless, you know, the Ben motion and what the Malthouse compromise. So what exactly was your role there? And how does it kind of exemplify some of the things you're talking about? Sure, yeah, this is the narrative I begin the main parts of the book off. So each of these big goals that we'd like to achieve, and I'll just say them out loud now so people remember them, democracy, equality, solidarity, security, and prosperity. For each of these, I do begin with a narrative to try and set the scene of, you know, what are these problems? And this narrative happens to involve me. This is the kind of self-absorbed narrative in that way. So despite my title, my lengthy title, I'm not Nuffield College's leading expert on electoral institutions, but my colleague Ian McLean is. And Ian wrote a book called What's Wrong with the British Constitution, really knows all the ins and outs. And so the two of us were invited down by some, I will leave them unnamed MPs, to see, uh, this was in March 2019, as Theresa May's third Brexit bill, I think, had failed. And MPs moved to what was called the indicative voting, that I'm sure will give everybody who remembers that period a kind of shiver down the spine. We were asked to see, is there a way that we could come up with an electoral system, essentially, within Westminster, so a way for MPs to cast their votes over what had become, at that point, six or seven different Brexit options. So people may remember things like Single Market 2.0, it might have been called Common Market 2.0. Yeah. And then yeah. there was Theresa May's deal, there was having another referendum, there was a full no-deal Brexit, there was being in the customs union, but not the single market, there was being in the single market, but not the customs union. Lots and lots of different choices. And of course, the problem, and I talk a lot about this in, in that part of the book, is that the Brexit referendum was easy. That was an up-down vote. But doing Brexit, as we all know, has proven a lot more difficult 
because there are different ways of Brexiting. Now, I know some people think that there's a kind of full Brexit or nothing, and so they'll put that further aside. But I would just know that there are lots of countries outside of the EU, like Switzerland and Norway and Turkey and so forth, that have some connection to the EU. And so the question is, did Britain want to have any of those connections? Yeah. Clearly, lots of MPs thought yeah. they did. With that in hand, how do you organise different ways of voting? Right, We could have had an alternative vote system. There's varieties that I talk about in the book, but I won't go through here, of alternative vote systems. Each of them had different flavors and different positives and negatives. So various forms of alternative voting might benefit extreme options. Other forms might benefit more moderate options. We ended up with approval voting, which is the simplest form of voting at all, where MPs just have to say, I can live with this. We realized at the end of our meeting in Parliament with the MPs who were in charge of the order paper, basically, and trying to figure out what they could do, is any electoral system they chose would almost inevitably lead to a certain type of Brexit and therefore was going to be rejected on exactly the same basis as all those types of Brexit. When the actual indicative votes happened, which were approval voting, you know, are you even willing to tolerate this? No one was willing to tolerate anything. So no one was even willing to put their head above the parapet at all. It's an interesting one as well, because it's ultimately that impasse was only breakable by going back to the people, quote unquote. Yeah, absolutely. But with an equally vague prospectus, actually. <laughs> so get Brexit done doesn't really tell you much either. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we began again, right? So now we had clarity that, yes, some options have been removed. Yeah. So we now removed the referendum. We probably removed various forms of soft Brexit. But it turned out that there were still different forms of hard Brexit, as Rishi Sunak has discovered. You know, it looks like... The reason I think people have been excited about the Windsor framework is it's the first time that anything has really been decided with a large number of MPs standing behind it. You know, however many years in we are, depending yeah, on yeah. where it wants to begin. So this. it's 500 plus, I think, yeah. voted in favour of it. Exactly. Yeah. But what I will say about the 2019 election, even if it didn't fully resolve Brexit, what it did do was it resolved the problems of parties breaking down. So the problem in the March 2019 is there was no party discipline at all. And that's when you can have this really, really chaotic kind of voting where there are all these different options and MPs are misrepresenting what they want. You just get what political scientists call cycling. You just get sort of different yeah. options leading until another option appears. Now, when Boris Johnson came in and hosted that election, he killed that problem. And in the book, I talk about the trade-off between chaos and polarisation. So I suppose we veered back towards polarisation then. But at least political parties at that point, once Johnson had put the hammer down, could cage the chaos you know, given that COVID then happened a month or two later, that was no bad thing. Do you think it felt particularly chaotic and disconcerting to people? Because normally British politics is a pretty smooth ride if you've got a majority and so on. But in this, it took a particular set of circumstances to render things this chaotic. Didn't it? Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because Brexit tilted the axis of British political competition. And so if you read my Substack. A number of times I look at the relationship across elections between kind of constituency level variables and the one I'm always interested in is in house prices. It used to be that places with expensive housing voted conservative and places with cheaper housing voted Labour. In other words, material wealth sort of was the dimension along which British politics was thought. And that was more or less true up to 2010. It was very, very true in 1997. It was still pretty true in 2010. But by 2019, so by that election post-Brexit, there was no relationship at all. So to be academic for a moment, there was an R squared, a card correlation of basically zero. And the only way that could happen is if the axis of British politics had flipped in some way. And, and that's what Brexit was. And, and in lots of ways, that was a great thing, because it meant a bunch of people who'd felt excluded from the dimension of political debate that mattered in the 1990s found a voice. But the challenging thing was that the political parties were not set up 
to operate on that dimension. And they are more so now, except, of course, that Labour have moved away from that kind of 2019 Remain position to something a lot vaguer and woollier. Either Brexit hasn't fully worked its way out, or the parties will have to push a lot harder to kind of tilt politics back onto its previous economic dimension. Yeah. And the second of your five traps, which you kind of touched on there, is to do with equality and poverty, which are not necessarily the same thing. Do you think that this is a perennial problem, regardless of which society is and regardless of how wealthy they are? Our views are always essentially relational to other people. So some on the right for it might argue that, oh, well, if we, as long as we grow the economy sufficiently, these problems will kind of wither away because everyone will be prosperous. I mean, is that really the case or is that kind of a bit of a cope, to use the, the jargon? Well, it might be a cope, but I think it's also a cope to poo-poo growth. And I think, look, if Liz Truss has left us with one important contribution to British politics, it's to remind people that you know, unless you have growth, you just end up with a kind of back and forth right. uh, fighting over the existing cake. So, so that is definitely bad. The chapter really focuses on whether there are inherent contradictions in democratic capitalism. It feels like there ought to be in some ways, right? In the sense that if it's one person, one vote as a political system, but your economy is one where resources accumulate to those who already have, which is not a perfect description of capitalism, but it's certainly something that happens, right? Capitalism might tend towards inequality. That feels like there's a tension. There's been a lot of social science argument about how, well, how do we reconcile these two things? The second book that I wrote and that I drawn in this chapter, which I mentioned to you earlier, that connects inequality and democratization, made a quite different argument to that. And one that really pushed against the conventional wisdom. Because we argued, and I think with a lot of good supportive evidence, that actually democracy was most likely to happen in countries with high levels of inequality, certain types of inequality. But that's typically because people who become rich in dictatorships are often not part of the regime. Right? And that was certainly true in 18th, 19th century Britain, that the merchants of the north weren't represented and they wanted representation. That's why we got great formats. If you think about the dangers of being very wealthy in Russia or China today, if you step out of line, you can understand why wealthy people actually would quite like the protections that come with democracy, because it might mean rule by the people, that's true, but it also tends to mean rule by courts, non-rule by capricious right. dictators. Yeah. That's interesting, because I mean, I, I was a Russianist by training, and um, it always struck me when I was there that all the big corporates, lawyers and stuff, they all use British law yeah. to adjudicate between themselves because of this exact problem. How do you think that the rise of, kind of globalisation has offset that, though? Because if you're an elite, rich Russian yeah. or Chinese, you can just leave. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge um, to whether inequality, does rising inequality transfer into democratization? Well, there's sort of two things that can go on here. On the one hand, if you're a wealthy oligarch, you might be able to screw your money away, not have it taken over by the elite. That's true. On the other hand, the existing elite might be able to screw all their money away and therefore face less risk if there's some kind of revolt. So in a way, it sort of tampons down everybody who's wealthy and can send their money out of the country's incentives to worry about this. There are some really horrible, nasty questions in politics, and one of them is, would it be better if Vladimir Putin was able to send his billions of unclearly earned dollars out of the country and retire in peace in Cuba or wherever he wants to go yeah. so that he leaves? I don't know is the answer to that. But globalisation creates these slightly odd opportunities to deal with I think you're back the to the agent problem there. Yeah. If anyone thinks that whoever replaces Vladimir Putin is going to be a, <laughs> a friendly pro-LGBT progressive figure in Russian politics doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. They're almost certainly wrong. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Just to return to the British context, because I'm sort of slightly skipping through your chapters yeah, here. Please. Um, a lot of- one of your, to me, without no shades to the other traps, but the one that I found most interesting was about solidarity and kind of fellow feeling. Yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning, you're not a political psychologist, but it seems to me to have a great deal to do with tribalism and in-groups and, yeah. and out-groups. If we can relate that to some of our current political topics in the UK... When we think about something like immigration, particularly illegal immigration, how much do you think that is to do with solidarity, the way that you framed it? I mean, people talk about it kind of being racism and stuff, but Mm -hmm. to me, it's more the sense of people don't like the sense that there's an out group that isn't playing by the same rules as the rest of them. It's not necessarily to do with ethnicity. Yeah, or at least it might not directly be. I mean, it's always a little bit hard to know, you know, how to describe in-group, out-group behaviours, right? Because obviously they can tip over into actual racism, but often... They are what political scientists call ethnocentrism, which is like a very kind of mild version of racism, or they can just be basic in-group, out-group kind of fairness considerations. I'm not going to resolve that debate today. What I will say is I think it's a generally widely held belief among political scientists that high levels of perceived diversity in societies make it hard to sustain welfare states along the Scandinavian lines because they do require a lot of mutual trust. And for whatever reason, that mutual trust has been harder to achieve in diverse societies. And I don't just mean diverse societies in terms of immigration. I might also mean it in terms of long-run divides like in Northern Ireland, which have been there for centuries. But where people don't feel a sense of trust in all of their fellow citizens, then providing solidarity for them, it's not surprising that it feels much harder. Okay, so to get to illegal immigration, I think there's two things going on with the current debate in terms of my book. You know, one is really in the security chapter, which is I think some people have higher sort of personal needs to feel secure. 
and people coming across the border feels anarchic. And I think that's an understandable impulse. We might not all agree with it, but it's not an uncommon human impulse to think like that. And then the government has to engage in a trade-off between what I think of as sort of at extreme, a kind of tyrannical approach. And I don't know if putting people on cruise ships is tyrannical or not. I suppose putting people on prison ships might be, or an anarchic. All of these themes and traps in the book connect to one another. So difference also matters for solidarity. Now, we're not talking about providing welfare benefits to asylum seekers unless one can, you know, thinks of putting them up in hotels as, as a welfare benefit. I, mean, I suppose in a way it is. But I do think the recent history of the NHS and how it plays with migration is a good example of this, right? So the NHS was free at the point of service for everybody, even really kind of including tourists for a long period of time. Then there was a crackdown on tourists using it, on so-called health tourism. But then there was a crackdown on perfectly legal immigrants using it, right? So now there's this NHS fee that everybody has to pay. Now, as somebody who was married to someone who's now but was a migrant and had to pay the NHS tax, her point was, well, hang about, I pay a huge amount in taxes already. Why am, I, why am I having to pay for this? But clearly that policy hit some kind of sweet spot on solidarity on how we draw those dimensions in British politics. And part of the problem with this question of, of solidarity, and you mentioned it in relation to a very good example of healthcare in the United yeah. States, which we always characterise as this kind of wild west. But as you point out, it's actually... They spend an inordinate amount of money. They, they just kind of cloak the way they do it. So rather than directly funding a nationalised service, they give huge tax breaks for, for healthcare and so on. How much do you think, I don't want to use the word ignorance, but like the lack of knowledge of how the government actually operates exacerbates these problems? Yeah, so this is something I talk about in the Solidarity chapter when I'm talking about the problems of information. The government doesn't have a lot of information about who it's giving solidarity to, and people don't have a lot of information about what the government is doing. So it's not an ideal world. Now, that varies on where you are. So in countries with really highly visible welfare states, you know, one way of thinking about a visible welfare state is one where all the benefits that you get from the government are taxed back, right? So you really feel everything kind of coming in and out. So obviously Scandinavian countries are like that, but some of the continental European ones do. Those countries, people, and this is work that my colleague Jane Gingrich has written on, people find it much easier to identify parties' positions on the welfare state and to be able to separate out what parties want and to match their own opinions with the parties than they do in America, which is completely the opposite direction, where the gap between the amount the government does spend and the amount you see is much, much wider. And that's because your healthcare is a tax benefit in the States. Government support of housing market is a tax benefit in the States. So the government's spending a lot of money, but you don't think it is. You're just getting tax cuts for it that you don't really see. And then it becomes harder for people to really know what the debate is or what different parties want. And ultimately, I think in an odd way, having taking the government so far away from the welfare state actually makes people trust the government less, which is sort of ironic because the government is trying to hide, but the very act of hiding is making the situation worse for it. Yeah, I mean, I assume you've been looking at events in France at the moment with great interest in regards, because yeah. you mentioned pensions a, a fair bit in the book as well. And this kind of, it's a weird one because it's not really a left-right issue. It's characterised as like neoliberalism and capitalism, but yeah. it's really a kind of temporal issue more than it a class is. one. Yeah, absolutely. So the other big problem with solidarity, other than across people, which we've spoken about, this informational one is across time and making sure that future me and current me <laughs> are doing the right thing for one another. Yeah. Uh, we all know it's really hard with pensions. Probably the most important, least well-known policy, although so many people have said this by now, that perhaps it's not least well-known, is auto-enrolment in pensions in the UK because people weren't saving for their pensions. If you default them into saving for their pensions, then you resolve some of those problems of people yep. not thinking towards the future. 
All kinds of pension reforms are much more visible than that, and they generally involve people losing pension entitlements because they're going to be older now. They might not really lose because they might live for longer, and that's the reason this is happening. But those are really hard to do, and I talk in the book about the granddaddy of them all, Social Security in the US. Initially, Roosevelt, with a majority in both houses, you know, massive, massive presidential margins, tries to introduce a Social Security that's going to kick in maybe five, six years, yeah. the payments out after the taxes start. And after a slightly dodgy election uh, where the Republicans gain seats, they just scrap it all and they start paying out at the same time as they tax. That's the problem that Macron has got in. That's the problem, by the way, the government might get into when they try and push retirement age up to 68. Nobody really wants to have the costs incurred without some benefits incurring as quickly as you can with it. And so then you just punt these things down the line yeah. or you end up with massive riots. But we do have a particular situation in the UK where the younger generation, I think I'm right in saying, over their lifetime will accrue a lot less benefits from the state. And there is that kind of, it feels yeah. like there's a breakdown in what we used to call the kind of generational contract. Right. And that's in part because the other thing that's happened with the British political axis is it's, and again, I have a, um, a substack on this called Generation Games, that the axis has kind of tilted towards an age divide. And that might be related to Brexit in part. Older people, whether wealthy or poorer, have shifted to the Conservatives. And the one thing that they have in common is they all get the universal state pension. If I was a young person moaning about the triple lock, I might need to remind myself, and I certainly do as I'm in my mid-40s now, that, well, actually, I'm going to be getting that too. And it's mm. a lot better than it used to be. But of course, that's still 20 odd years ahead for me. And I can understand why young people might think, right, well, it's lovely that in 20 years time, I might be 10% better off. But right now, I'm paying a high graduate tax. I can't afford a house and so on. Yeah, I think it's the sense of being taxed to the hilt as well and not really getting much back in either in the here or now. Or, yeah, and or I, I think future. this is a huge problem. I, you know, I just wrote a subject yesterday about Starmer's five missions, you know, one of which is getting the NHS on its own, NHS fit for the future. It's going to cost an inordinate amount of money. And the problem is, who do you tax to pay for that? Because if the tax level in the UK is now at levels that it was at the end of the Second World War, and I think more importantly here, if the tax burden is being paid by young working age people at much higher levels, then it's hard to see who you're going to squeeze, particularly when the labour base is young adults of working age, right? So they're going to have to attack their own base to pay for healthcare, which ultimately is going to go to a lot of people who voted Conservative over the last 10 years. So you can see that there's a, there's a political dynamic to this that, that might be more challenging. We've also emerged with a different political dynamic, which is that no politician is going to touch public sector pay. Yeah. After what's happened in the last few, we have a kind of theoretical solidarity between taxpayers and, say, nurses, where everyone thinks they should get a pay rise. Yeah. You know, but often I think that I don't know how you feel about the kind of design of polls and things like this, because it's used to guide so much of the kind of narrative. So often they're just framed as kind of quite simple questions. Do you think nurses should be paid well? It's like, yeah. I mean, as someone who, you know, occasionally designs polls themselves, writing a question that isn't leading, I mean, that's one set of problems, but also where people have any kind of skin in the game is really, really difficult. I mean, I can answer whatever I want in a poll. And, and generally speaking, even on an internet poll, which reduces it slightly, there's still a social desirability. Yeah, you know, this is the kind of quiet Tory thing of, exactly. yeah, you want to give the right answer. Yeah, mm -hmm. and my first book on education, I had a real challenge in, I had lots of polls about do people want to spend more money on education. The group of people who want to spend less money on education are a very small group in surveys, and it's not entirely clear why they're answering that way. You know, you don't want to just be picking up people who are trolling the survey. When it's only 5 or 10% of people, you, you're nearing the kind of conspiracy theory level. Right. Of, of this is the moon landing quotient yeah, or something. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, look, I love polls. I think they're interesting to do. I think 
Um, YouGov and Co do a great job at trying to get a representative sample of the UK, but there are still all kinds of challenges of getting people to respond to them. So, and we know that we've missed a lot of people who, you know, going back to my point about the changing axis of British politics in 2016, those people weren't being picked up in polls. But also, you can't govern by poll. In a way, you can campaign by poll, and I think that's probably an effective thing for politicians to do. And if you are lacking in rhetorical skills, as at least one leader of a major political party might be construed to be, then that would make sense. But ultimately, the decisions you make when you're in office, I wouldn't spend a huge amount of time looking at polls. The one thing I wouldn't do, though, is try and do things that are going to be incredibly unpopular, unless you're absolutely certain that you have a policy to getting there. And this is my fear about the wealth tax and how attractive it might or might not be for the Labour Party, is there are lots of good economic reasons for wealth taxation. Henry George wrote about them 130 years ago. Right. But it's incredibly politically unpopular. And I think that's, unless we're talking about taxing the very, very wealthiest people, and there are challenges in doing that (laughs) that are also distinct. And so I think this is the kind of place where polls can probably tell you, look, here is something that you might think is a good idea, but the general public hate. And so if you're going to do it, you really need to figure out how to sell it. But if you're just going to do things that the general public say they like, you're going to discover that you can't do all of those things because the general public don't have to set budgets. Maybe the Ur example of what you mean is the 2017 election. And they tried to do the quote unquote dementia tax, which was actually a reasonably sensible policy. But as soon as it's bracketed as something, two things I don't like stuck together, dementia and taxes. You're, You're on a hiding to nothing. As I mentioned earlier in the interview, one of your recent posts on political calculus was about housing. I'm not going to try and relay the entire thing here, but do you see any way out of the kind of impasse of British housing politics? Mm-hmm. The kind of Gordian knot is really the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, which makes our planning system discretionary. I don't see any circumstances in which government is going to just scrap that. Out with that, I mean, what tools are available? Let's say you're in government in a year's time. You want to get house building rocketing. What might you do? I mean, that is the hardest question of British politics. Yeah, good one to finish on. <laughs> uh, so, and it's hard for the reasons I talk about in the book, which is this is exactly the kind of place where people's individual interest and the collective good just bash up against each other constantly. I read a, an article about uh, people in Garsington, which is a village just outside of Oxford, complaining about house building, saying there is no evidence that building houses reduces prices anywhere. And I thought, right, okay, well, that's their sort of starting position from the opponents. This is going to be tough, right? So uh, denying that there could be any effect at all. The other challenge is, I think, for very good reasons, lots of people think that this country has too centralised a governance structure anyway. This is actually one of the few places where we do have effective decentralisation. Unfortunately, what we get from that is a bad too effective. (laughs) Yeah, too effective. So we've ended up with the worst of both worlds, right? So I suppose the only way that you break a political logjam like this is with a party that isn't going to vote against it. Rishi Sunak, for understandable political reasons, backed down on the planning reforms, I guess, Truss and, and, and really Dominic Cummings, right, had started to get into motion. It is clearly a part of the Conservative Party that is aware that this is a problem. My guess is a Labour government, if that is what happens after the next election with a majority of 30 or less, is going to struggle for exactly the same reasons. The time that it could have happened would have been with the Boris Johnson enormous majority, right? Where And, yeah. you know, to some degree, right, this is how the dementia tax that you spoke about earlier got resolved. He adopted the Dilna plan. Now, of course, that's been sort of de-adopted or re-adopted back and forth again. But actually, he did break the logjam briefly there. And, you know, had things not fallen apart in the way that perhaps they were inevitably going to for that particular prime minister, 
they could have carried on with a set of policies that looked like they were going to break some of these logjams. So ultimately, the way this gets sorted is by someone having a huge majority, either going after the way we currently do planning or by finding ways of rebuilding new towns outside the purview. And that's, you know, all these city deals and things have been attempts to do that, right? Garden villages and so on. They've all been a bit small scale. I suppose you could try and double down on all of that or have some kind of national mission. Actually, just to go back to the solidarity point, if you wrap it in a flag, right, I think yeah. that is probably mm. the most effective way of convincing people. You're going to build for Britain. But then if you do that, you can't just have the slogan. You do have to go and do it. And this is what the government found hard with levelling up, which was sort of wrapped in a flag, is that unless you put a lot of effort into doing it as well as the rhetoric behind it, then you don't get anywhere. Just to finish off with, come circle back to the beginning, because you are a professor of comparative institutions. How well do you think the UK is doing on with its various institutions? There's been a lot of focus for it on arm's length ones. The Bank of England comes to mind, but also the kind of what we kind of call usually quite pejoratively, the quangocracy. Do you think we're a particular outlier? Do we do pretty well compared to most countries? Where would you situate Britain in the kind of Western democratic world in terms of the quality of our institutions? I think that we downplay how effective our institutions are in the United Kingdom. I think, you know, the Bank of England, it doesn't always make exactly the right call on interest rates. But overall, it's a pretty sharp, well-staffed entity compared to lots of other central banks, and it's well-respected worldwide. It's probably the case that we over-quangoed from the 90s onwards, but those types of quangos can also be helpful for stable policymaking. I mean, in the end, we haven't got rid of any of the regulators. They're all still there. Off-gem, again, sometimes makes bad decisions, but one wonders whether the decisions it makes are worse than a minister having to make those decisions on the fly for political reasons at the time. And if you look at countries that are thought of as having pretty well-functioning institutions, like Scandinavian countries, they actually have a lot of independent bodies. So, for example, with education, and I worked for the British Treasury many moons ago on education, at that time and still, our education policies veer back and forth as governments come in. And education is a long-run investment in people, right? You can't keep changing every three years. So what the Swedes and the Finns do is they have a national board of education that makes long-run decisions, but spending decisions stay with the ministries. So I don't think we're over I do think that our institutions became more detached from public concerns up through the Brexit period not least because we did have a global financial crisis that made a lot of people's lives very challenging and the institutions kind of carried on as was. I don't think, though, whatever helpful scepticism we've had of institutions since that point should be amplified any further. I think we reached some points where Britain's functionality became distrusted by international investors. And I think that's the point where you've reached too far. So I think a, you know, let's not indulge our institutions, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. Well, Ben, thank you very much indeed for joining us. There's so much that we haven't discussed in this book. There's, it's a very kind of rich and densely kind of argued piece of work. I would recommend all our listeners go out and buy it. Why Politics Fails out now in all good bookshops. And do also subscribe to Ben's Substack, Political Calculus. If you want to know the real nuts and bolts of British politics, I couldn't think of a better one. Ben, thanks very much. And thank you so much for having me. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.